0: When I play football I don't feel bad Don't think about homework or cops or my dad There's only cheerleader sunshine and sweat It's the closest to heaven I get Win or lose,
1: it's all the same I keep my head in the game
0: Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 27, 2019. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, and we have to add a producer to your resume here, Michael, right? (laughs) Because we have uh, coming up November 16th at 54 Below. We have 54 Below Loves Cast Albums, which is uh, part of your launch of the new website, uh, website, uh, castalbumreviews.com.
1: Yes, thanks for plugging it. We got a great group, as I mentioned last week: Anita Gillette, Penny Fuller, Bill Hutton, the original Broadway Joseph, as in in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Coat, and Marty Vidnovic, um, who really was the leading man on Broadway in the '80s. I'm I'm so happy to have him. Plus, we have Robbie Rosell from Broadway Records, and uh, Michael Levine as our musical director, and we may have. Uh, one or more people added to the program so we're really looking forward to it
0: excellent so uh we'll have a link to it in the show notes uh to if you want to get over to 54 less loves cast albums on november 16th uh that'd be awesome thank you broadway radio is brought to you today by listeners like you patrons who support us at patreon.com slash broadway radio there's many different ways to support broadway radio so get over to patreon.com slash broadway radio to support us today so first up we have uh, michael and peter have gotten a chance to see scotland pa so peter why don't you get us started on scotland
2: well you know in musical theater there's something called the 10 minute rule and that is it's not a real rule it's more a policy but in the first 10 minutes, you're supposed to establish what your show is, and indeed, we have to give Scotland PA credit, both uh, Michael Mitnick, the librettist, um, and uh, Adam Guan, the songwriter, for setting up the fact that this is a parody of Macbeth, and uh, instead of the three witches, we have three stoners, if you will, um, <laughs> who, uh, Who are indulging in marijuana at the moment and if you ever have you will certainly laugh at one moment um, which is uh, very indicative of marijuana smoking so so fine you know I, I have to give them that that they did establish right away that it's a parody okay however what happens after that got me emotionally involved and that turned out to be a problem for me I'm not saying it's gonna be a problem for anyone else but it turned out to be a problem for me okay what's the problem all right So we have a guy named Mac and Mac is um, working in um, a a small little fast foodery, nothing big, nothing dramatic, um, a, a mom and pop type operation. But he always comes up with these good ideas and all the ideas he comes up with involves dramatic irony because we know that all the ideas he comes up with are good ideas that in fact were done by the fast food places you go into now, uh, a (laughs) drive-in window, that type of thing. Um, And they're really good ideas. And we know they're good ideas because we've seen them work for decades. But his boss won't listen to him. And he keeps on saying, you know, you're crazy, you're out of your mind, you're stupid, all that kind of stuff. And um, we feel very bad for him. And we feel bad for him when his wife is trying to be so supportive and indicating to him that, no, he really does have good ideas and he is smart and he is better than the boss thinks he is. So, alright, uh, now I'm emotionally involved. I feel bad for him because which of us hasn't worked in a job where that's happened? Where we've come up with what we think is really a good idea. It might not be a good idea, but we think it's a good idea. And then we tell the boss and the boss says, no, 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 here's why that won't work. And we're shot down. We feel inferior and all that kind of stuff. So, as I say, I'm emotionally involved with this guy. But You know, this is going to be a parody of Macbeth. And Pat, Mac's wife, is Lady Macbeth, and Mac is Macbeth. And the guy who owns the place, by the way, is Duncan. Uh, So you get the point. Um, And then they go into doing terrible things, just as people in Macbeth do. And I'm not on their side. I wish that what he would do... I'll grant you, it's a trite story, but I I want him to leave that business. I want him to start his own business. I want him to uh, do very well. I mean, um, it reminds me very much of Ira Eker, who worked for Leo Schull's show business. And he came up with all these good ideas, and Leo Schull always said, no, 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 no. So Mm -hmm. Ira Eker started backstage. Mm. And backstage turned out to be uh, something that eclipsed show business and then some and drove it out of business. Mm. So, you know, under those circumstances, I really do feel that the show um, gets us in a position that we don't want to be in for a parody. And um, while I do think that um, the lyrics are excellent, excellent um i do feel that because it's a parody and because there's so much involving murder and all those other things you know from macbeth that so many of the songs have to have eighth notes and they're patter songs and you don't get a sense of melody however there is one magnificent song in it in which a young man tells why he plays football it's going to surprise you uh, terrific song the song of the year as far as i'm concerned so that's very good too. Now, what I didn't know when I walked in was this is actually based on a movie from 2001 called Scotland PA. And I, um, it really, um, when I was looking at the title page of the playbill to see how to spell a name, only then did I notice based on the movie by blah, 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 you know, and I was very surprised. So I did some internet research and it does seem that the, um, musical follows the movie quite, quite closely. So, um, I would love to see the movie and see, um, if that's turns out to be true, uh, especially if it did lead into this wonderful song about this young man, uh, singing why he plays football. But, uh, so many of you may very well be familiar with, uh, this property because of that movie, but, um, it's well done the people in it are terrific um very well directed by lonnie price very slick and um but gee um i felt somewhat betrayed that i had to watch a guy i really came to like do a lot of terrible things
0: all right uh peter did you mention it was at laura Pell's the roundabout theater
2: uh, no that's where it is though yeah yeah, yeah. all
0: mm-hmm. right michael what'd you think of this
1: I have very similar feelings to Peter uh, and I would go further. Uh, You know, I guess when you do a show based on Shakespeare and you make changes in the plot and characters, you do so at your own peril. Um, I mean, obviously uh, there would be Uh, an impetus to try to do that because maybe it's felt that there are certain situations and characters that don't work in the modern world, but you still have to be careful. And, and Peter, you know, identified one of the major ones here in Macbeth, the character of Duncan, the King is, is very benevolent. He uh, he's not uh, evil like this, Character in the musical, the 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 boss at the fast food store, um, who's also named Duncan, uh, and that's that's a huge difference because uh, it, it changes how we feel about everyone. If you know, if if the Macbeths in the original play uh, kill this king just out of sheer ambition that's very different than uh what happens here where the, where this guy is so awful it's even implied that he's um abusing his wife mm-hmm. i mean he's a really bad guy and jeb brown by the way does a wonderful job of playing him jeb brown who usually uh well i've often seen him play uh, much lighter characters and but he really he really did a good job with this and um and not only that uh, but when the murder occurs it's it's all kind of messy and, and convoluted and and uh, people's motivations are very unclear because Macbeth does go to the uh, fast food place with the intention of killing Duncan but then he actually sort of winds up being killed by accident so uh, you know they're they're trying to make changes and and keep our sympathies for certain characters and and change the way we feel about key people. Another major example is is the lady Macbeth character who's uh, here called pat i 'm not sure where they got that from um played by Taylor Iman Jones, and she is a much more much 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 more sympathetic character than the one in in shakespeare she she wants um uh, Macbeth to succeed because she really honestly feels and we see that he's being uh, you know, he's being ignored and he has all these great ideas and and he's just not being given a chance. And then she also finds out they find out that um, Duncan, the, the the boss, has been cheating them on on pay. Uh, he's not been paying them uh, what what they're fully owed. Uh, so they have a lot of reasons to be very, very angry with him. And it's just a completely different thing than a murder of a good person that's done solely by, uh, you know, for for ambitions Purposes. I mean, of course, it's wrong to kill and uh, to, to kill a, a bad person also, but it's still I, I think it's a, a really major difference. Um, other changes. Uh, I, I liked the first act better than the second because the first act I thought was lighter in general. And and I thought there was a lot of cleverness in it. The character of McDuff is now a um, a detective, a female detective um Played by Megan Lawrence, who's you know one of the one of the great musical theater comedians, um, and yeah, the first act was very clever and fun, I thought. But the tone, uh, especially in Act Two, it really goes off the rails as they start mixing very serious stuff with, with uh, you know, with the comedy remaining, but the comedy diminishing as as the show goes on. I think possibly a stronger director might have been able to even it out a little more, but I really do think that a lot of the that issue is in the writing itself. Um, and I did like the score, as Peter did. I liked it very much, and it. Uh, I want to say this is a show that is not over-amplified. Um, I cannot say that very often anymore, so big points to them for that. Um, we must mention in the role of Banco, (laughs) Jay Armstrong Johnson, who plays him as a total uh, surfer dude kind of stoner guy, uh, but very, very sweet. Um, It's along the lines of, uh, I don't know, the the first major uh, portrait uh, like that that I could think of is Sean Penn as Jeff Spickley in Fast Times at Richmond High. but. We've seen other people do it. I think James Franco has played that kind of a role once or twice. Uh, Well, J. Armstrong Johnson does it as well or better than than either of them. And I think that you are going to see his name when the Off-Broadway Award nominations are announced. Um, The sets and costumes were really quite well done their whole physical production for uh, a space like the Laura Pells and yes the the coup uh, de théâtre at the intermission was a lot of fun and it's interesting i think this is the second at least the second time when i have seen the lobby of the pells transformed during intermission uh um so I don't know if maybe I don't know if Lonnie Price saw that that previous show there where they did that uh whosever idea it was it was a very very clever idea and um so I think this had a lot of potential and uh, but it's just um you'll you might be a little distracted tr- trying to follow exactly where the um where it's According to the characters and plot of Macbeth, and then when, where, and when it just completely goes in another direction. Um, I also uh, I, I agree about the song, the football song, but I, on the other hand, I, I did think that um, there's a plot element within that that sort of came out of nowhere and uh, and and wasn't real and wasn't really developed. So that was a little. A little confusing, but the song in itself is is really great. Um, I I would like to hear more, a lot more from these people, uh, Michael Mitnick and Adam Guan. Adam Guan, um, I'm more familiar with, I suppose. And um, yeah, you know, it's it, it. I I really enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. Uh, oh, and the great the great cast also includes Alicia Umfress, Um Actually, it's, I guess this is a reunion, a little mini reunion of Alicia Umfris and J. Armstrong Johnson, because they were both in On the Town on Broadway. And Ryan McCartan, who plays Mac, he really has a great voice. Um, so it's always wonderful to see him on stage. Plus uh, the aforementioned Jeb Brown, always terrific, and, and everyone else involved here. So it was, you know, it's, it's um, uh, flawed, but a very worthy effort, I would say.
0: Okay. So that is uh, Scotland PA. It's playing through December 8th uh, at the Laura Pell's on West 46th Street, which is the off-Broadway roundabout venue. Um, Any thoughts that this could be a transfer for them?
2: I don't think so. No, no, not why.
0: Okay. All right. So that'll be probably your only chance to take a look at it. Broadway Radio would like to thank our sponsor, Slave Play. Slave Play is the new American play everyone is talking about, and due to phenomenal demand, this satirical look at race, sex, and power has been extended through January 19th. Written by Jeremy O'Harris and directed by Robert O'Hara, Jesse Green of The New York Times calls it one of the best and most provocative new works to show up on Broadway in years. And Aisha Harris adds that Slave Play reimagines the possibilities of what theater can give us. Don't miss the theatrical event of the year, Visit SlavePlay.com for tickets. Please support the advertisers who support Broadway Radio. Michael, you got over to the other roundabout venue, the American Airlines Theater, to see Rose Tattoo. So tell us about this.
1: Uh, The Rose Tattoo is a uh, play first produced in 1951 by Tennessee Williams and was, I believe, the first of his plays to win a Tony Award, which, if there was ever... (laughs) You know, a case of, well, this is for past work, not necessarily for the current work. I think that was it. Uh, We should hasten to note that there were no Tony Awards when The Glass Menagerie opened on Broadway. So that couldn't have won. Uh, But there certainly were when Streetcar did. So that, uh, yeah, that's not um, that award... Uh, you know, I would say was not for the work itself. It's this is a really kind of a mess of a play. Of course, since it's of course since it's by Tennessee Williams, it has its wonderful moments. But it's really very very odd. I mean, we have this this woman, Serafina delle Rose, and she's living on on the Gulf Coast, and she uh, the, the 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 first scene is devoted largely to her speaking uh, with other people about how much she loves her husband and and specifically uh, she talks about their you know she basically talks about how sexually fulfilled she is by him and what a great body he has and blah 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 blah. and she really rhapsodizes about him um well. Uh, at the end of the first scene, uh, or somewhere thereabout, we, we learn that he has died and then we see her grieving over him, but we have never met this character and we never do. And he never appears as a ghost or anything like that. So that is, I think, a a very odd setup. And I don't, I'm surprised that Williams made a mistake like that. I, I would consider that a mistake, um, So we go from there. And then the first act is very, very uh, disjointed. We we find out that Serafina's daughter, young daughter, is dating a sailor and Serafina is is not so happy about that. And she's very unhappy and she's she's still mourning her husband and all of these she's dealing with all of these women who live around her and who are gossiping and commenting on her situation, including one woman who is called La Strega, which means the witch. Um, It's, you know, this very colorful, odd character who keeps walking around and and making comments. Um, And then... I, I had forgotten this, and actually, I didn't look it up to see if the play was originally uh, written in two or three acts. But at any rate, um, it's not until after the intermission that this fellow shows up, Alvaro Cavallo which uh, his last name means, depending on how you exactly how you translate it, <laughs> "eat a horse" or "horse eater," um, and he's this very colorful truck driver um Serafina's husband had been a, a truck driver as well uh and so they kind of bond on that level but Alvaro is uh, supposed to be a guy with the face of a clown and and uh, uh but the body of uh well, she keeps saying that he has the same body that her husband had he's really well built because it is a Tennessee Williams play, and we usually have somebody like that in it. <laughs> <laughs> so um once uh he comes on, at least the play becomes interesting because it's about uh whether or not they're going to get together they 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 seem at first um there's a big question as to uh, whether they're simpatico or not, but then they, uh, they wind up being very, very much drawn to each other. And then uh, ultimately they do get together, although it, it, you know, it seems right until the last moment that maybe that's not going to happen. So I uh, think, and, and uh, again, stating that the script itself is, is, all over the place. Uh, even even granting that, I would say that this production is is just really um, not well directed at all uh, because it, because of the the tone shift. Uh, the, the director mm-hmm. Trip Cullman, did not did not help, and if anything, exaggerated the wild shifts in in tone throughout the evening. Um, it's almost as if uh, Act One. And Act Two were two different plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, so different is the tone. Uh, and again, not completely his fault, but I think he he did it worse. There there are many moments in it which do seem uh, the acting is as broad, if not more so than a than a, a well a a, a really crazy sitcom or or a or a farce a a stage farce um and that doesn't fit in with the with the tone of the rest of it certainly not so um i yeah i think that this is not uh certainly not top drawer williams i don't think anyone would say it is and It could have been done better. The uh, production, the last production I saw was quite a few years ago at Circle in the Square with Mercedes Rule. I remember that at least being more tonally consistent Mm, than than this one. Uh, But um, I I have not really mentioned Marissa Tomei yet. Uh, She does a wonderful job as Serafina in a role in which maybe she's not 100% perfectly cast. Um, She somehow seems a little too soft and, and not a, a force of nature in the way that uh, Anna Magnani, who played the role in the film and who uh, uh, the role, role was originally written for her to do on Broadway, but she was then unavailable and it wound up going to Maureen Stapleton, which um, I, I, I've i often pictured what Maureen Stapleton was like in this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't actually looked to see if there's any footage of her, of her in it because that would be... Interesting. I, one was, does not immediately think of her either in the role. Um, but again, yeah, Marisa Tomei, uh, I, I thought her Italian-American accent was spot on. And and she really, uh, she got many aspects of the character. And she played well with um, Iman Elliott, who is Alvaro Mangiacavallo. They seem to have a lot of chemistry, so that this production did have that going for it.
0: All right, so that is the Rose Tattoo over at Roundabouts American Airlines Theater on Broadway uh, at Forty uh, Second Street, and it is playing through December Eighth of Twenty Nineteen. So get over there and check that out as well. This episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by Mack Weldon. Mac Weldon is a company that sells high quality men's basics clothing for everyday everywhere at a great price from head to toe mac weldon has you covered in comfort from underwear to socks to tops to bottoms i just bought myself the intrepid long sleeve polo woven boxers and the extended crew socks They're very very comfortable and i would encourage everybody to test them out mac weldon believes in smart design premium fabrics and simple shopping mac weldon will be the most comfortable underwear socks shirts undershirts hoodies and sweatpants and more that you'll ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shorts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means that they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Not only does Mac Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates just for everyday life. Broadway Radio listeners can get 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code Broadway Radio. Mac Weldon offers free shipping on orders over $50 and free returns always. Don't forget, you can get 20% off your first order by going to macweldon.com and use the promo code Broadway Radio. We'd like to thank Mac Weldon for sponsoring Broadway Radio and please support the sponsors who support Broadway Radio. If you see me at a Broadway show, ask to see my Mac Weldons. Uh, Peter, you got over to another one of our major nonprofits, the Manhattan Theater Club, to see the world premiere premiere of Bella Bella written and performed by Harvey Firestein. So tell us about this.
2: Well, um, one thing that people should know more than anything else is that um, Harvey Firestein is not dressed as Bella Abzug as we expect to see Bella Abzug for a few seconds. And I mean that he wears the famous red hat um but otherwise he is clad in um a black sweatshirt and back black jeans and uh bare feet, where you can see that uh, his uh toenails are painted but other than that you know he still claims to be Bella Abzug um he is definitely Bella Abzug <laughs> um he makes no bones about being Harvey Firestein it's 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 not that at all <clears throat> but it's impossible not to think that you're looking at Harvey Firestein because he looks and sounds like Harvey Firestein. So I guess, you know, as I was watching, I was thinking, well, you know, I fully expected him to, to be dressed as a woman. But, you know, I guess that would have been too much. Maybe um, they took their inspiration from the Tony Awards when George Hearn went on um, and sang I Am What I Am, dressed in a man's suit. Uh, maybe they just felt it would be too much and it would be too much of a parody if he... Um, wore the, uh, the the dress and all that goes with that so maybe that was the reason it might have been a good reason but on the other hand maybe Harvey Firestein should have been content to write this play and have well let's say Leah Delaria come on and play um Bella, Bella. I have a feeling we may see this play again with a woman playing it. And uh, that'll be fine with me. And again, this has nothing to do with Harvey Fierstein's performance, who's very engaging and quite wonderful. But still, there is that disconnect. And I I thought that was um, a bit of a problem there. So that's that's the thing that bothered me the most. Well, the other thing that's very strange to me is that it all takes place in a bathroom. Now, apparently when Bella Abzug was um, running for a, a senator and it turns out that um, it was going to be a close race and she had no idea if she was going to uh, lose, which um, could happen. And indeed, she had never lost before. So this would be a major setback for her because she was so used to winning that during that night uh, that she hold herself up in the bathroom of uh, the hotel summit, um, and just couldn't go out and face people. All right, I'm fine with that. But one of the things that Harvey Feierstein says is that, um, you know, considering that I rented the whole ballroom, they could have at least given me a suite. Well, frankly, the bathroom that you see at the Manhattan Theater Club uh, is the type of bathroom you would get in a suite. It's quite large, Um, it has a table in it. I mean, if you're in a hotel, we've all been in hotel rooms, we all know what bathrooms in hotel rooms look like. And believe me, this is far more grand than that. So either the set should have been more um, claustrophobic, which I don't think would have been a good idea, or don't mention the suite um, because that is at odds with that. So um, that's a bit of a problem as well. The other problem uh, is the fact that uh, here she is (laughs) talking to us, but, many time, well three or four i should say harvey breaks the fourth wall and he starts talking to people in the audience and well i mean that's not what's going on i mean this is supposed to be what's going on in bella abzug's head and why is if you're in a bathroom in a hotel there's no audience there so why are you talking to the audience so um i think that's um it's very strange very strange um but otherwise you know there is there is that happy firestein charm and uh, that does go a long way but i'm looking forward to seeing him with a woman as time goes on
0: all right so that is bella bella and uh it is playing over at manhattan theater club through december 1st and we'll have a link to that in the show notes michael you going to see this
1: Yes, I'm seeing it Wednesday. And I I was going to comment, although I haven't seen it yet, I already uh, can say I agree with Peter's first point, because I know some people I've spoken to uh, who haven't seen it yet seem confused uh, as to whether he is actually playing her. Uh, And it seems like the answer is, well, sort of. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and so that might be a you know you're not supposed to do that to an audience uh i know you're not supposed to you're supposed to let people know what they're going to get to a certain extent uh i think uh so that might be an issue for this show coming
0: up with the tina turner musical is tina turner going to be in it (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, the share show? The show. She showed, might be there. all
0: the all the others, Margaritaville and Jimmy Buffett mm. and all the m- Yes, well the most recent trend of that uh, confusion happening. That's a separate issue. <laughs> this episode of This Week on Broadway is being supported by Darren Brown's Secret. Darren Brown's Secret is now on Broadway for a strictly limited engagement. Audiences and critics are blown away by this master of psychological illusion. The New York Times says you'll be brainwashed into joy. Deadline calls it stunning, captivating, thoroughly entertaining from start to finish. The Daily Beast says you'll be flummoxed, amazed, floored, fascinated, freaked out, charmed, and wonderstruck. Experience Darren Brown's Secret for yourself now at the Court Theatre through January 4th. Get tickets at DarrenBrownSecret.com. Please support the advertisers who support Broadway Radio. Um, Michael, you got over to the West Side Theater to see Little Shop of Horrors, so, so tell us about this uh, musical.
1: Don't have a lot to say, except I absolutely loved it. Just wonderful, wonderful, intimate production in an intimate theater directed by Michael Mayer and starring Tammy Blanchard, Jonathan Groff, and Christian Borle. Um, <clears throat> But this in the upstairs theater at the West Side, and and by the way, I asked one of the ushers because I wasn't sure. I, I said, which which theater is actually larger, uh, th- this upstairs theater or downstairs? And she said, um, upstairs is larger, but only by, I think she said, like 20 seats. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wasn't sure about that, but I at least got but that the question. the downstairs
0: theater me. is very flat. You know, the upstairs it's very, yeah Yeah. 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 It's and,
1: very flat and it has those posts downstairs yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. upstairs, I would say is a much better uh, experience in terms of uh, stadium seating you, uh, you would call it mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, and sidelines and, and and things of that sort so yeah,
0: I don't think they, they could have done the uh, the plant in the downstairs theater because uh, the downstairs theater, if I'm remembering is very low ceilings and not yeah, like, yeah, fly yeah, space yeah. not, not right. wing space or You're fly right. space or things like right. that so yeah. yeah but if they combine them together.
1: Yeah yeah well at least they have some more seats to offer uh in, uh in the upstairs theater because that's the that's the only negative thing i have to say about this production is that a, a lot of people won't get to see it because the demand for tickets is so huge i've been hearing all these figures of what tickets are selling for on um you know the second secondary market markets. sites <laughs> i heard an 800 hundred dollar figure yesterday mm. um and you know I, I, as we've discussed i think a lot of that is jonathan groff who really is a bona fide star now but also the production itself uh, is great that the property the property itself is so beloved um and uh, it's it's just really really so well done uh james mentioned that he was speaking with you said tom curtis right yeah what is one of the producers as and stressed that there are absolutely no plans to move it to broadway and i think that's very 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 smart because as we know the the uh the broadway production uh of some years ago uh directed by jerry Zachs with hunter foster And, um, uh, Carrie Butler, is that right?
2: Mm -hmm. I I think so.
1: Yeah. Uh, it wasn't bad, but it just, it didn't seem to, the show just didn't seem to work in a, in a big space like that. So it's exactly where it should be. and, And so wonderful to see. I only wish that, uh, more people could get to see it. Maybe they will be able to keep extending, uh, not necessarily with the, with the three original leads, but, uh. It's it's just one of the one of the best things I've seen lately and 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 we owe so much to Howard Ashman and Alan Mencken for creating the show, which was so influential in, in many, many ways. The um the cast I loved I actually loved Tammy Blanchard. I thought she gave a very, very wonderful, sweet, moving performance that um was not a carbon copy of Ellen Green, which is so, so hard to do. And it's interesting, her uh Tammy's accent, uh, it was still in uh, you know, a very thick New York accent. But do you know who she sounded very much like to me? It was Judy Holliday in Born
2: Yesterday. Yes, that's very good. Very good. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if she modeled it after that. I thought she she did a great job. She her voice is not very strong but uh i thought it sounded lovely and 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 the whatever vulnerability she has vocally i thought actually fed very very well into the into the character um i did notice that um it seemed to me that suddenly seymour was brought down in key a little bit. uh, And I I guess that was for her, but it didn't damage the song or anything. It was still one of the highlights. Uh, Jonathan is, is endearing and charming and wonderful, as you would expect. His voice, his singing voice sounds better than... Ever And he, um, this is interesting, he made an interesting choice of uh, eschewing a New York accent. Yeah. Uh, he does not have the the New York accent that Brick Moranis has in the movie, and I uh, believe the other Seymours I've seen on stage had. And I don't know if that's uh, uh, because he doesn't think he's good at it, <laughs> and uh, just didn't want to try it and fail. Uh, or maybe, you know, he just made the decision consciously because he wanted to uh make it his own a little bit uh so i guess um you know if you want to nitpick it 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 doesn't make a lot of sense for him not to have a new york accent because he's supposed to have been uh, an orphan who was brought up on skid row and i think we're supposed to be in new york um but uh but it really didn't matter very much he was he was just charming and sweet and and it's so important to bond with that character uh because of what you know what he eventually winds up doing <laughs> when he becomes a slave to this man-eating plant uh he got that completely and, and it was just wonderful and christian borel um <laughs> you know he, he his main role here again is the dentist the sadistic dentist or scrivello uh and he was great in that, but it, it wasn't almost even his best role. He, uh, he did, um, he also played that c- customer, uh, who comes in the, sh- into the shop early on and is the first one to notice the plant, Audrey too. And he, in that role, <laughs> he, he was so hilarious that it almost stopped the show. This is the a part that's actually played in the movie by Christopher Guest. It's just a, tiny little cameo but his his uh the voice he used and his inflections and his timing um there was another uh point during the show uh when he was playing the dentist in the scene where seymour comes uh to the office with the intent of killing oren um it it seemed to me that there was a moment where Jonathan almost broke up. Uh, it was actually when, um, when Oren is, uh, dying of, because he's got, um, uh, uh, a laughing gas mask, uh, attached to his head and he can't get it off and he can't stop laughing. Uh, it, it was hilarious, and and I, and it seemed – Jonathan kind of had his head down, and his body was shaking a little bit, and I think he, he was trying to hold it together. So that was a, a really, really wonderful moment. Uh, if you can get a ticket to this in any way, please, please try to. I'm, I'm not sure um, of the – policies as far as cancellations or if there's any lottery or anything of that sort but um it's really just wonderful one of the best things i've seen in weeks
0: so i went back to see it again um oh yes I, i talked about last week or the week before that i had seen it with my family and uh um so i went back to see it i saw it this week and i I neglected to talk about how good Tammy Blanchard was in the last time I talked about it. And I'm just overwhelmed with this whole production how much fun it is. And it's funny, uh, uh, Jonathan and Christian had a different uh, point in in the show that I saw this week where they both turned upstage because they couldn't hold it together. (laughs) It was very, very funny. It was during the... uh, uh, When he... uh, uh, when the dentist comes back to the uh, to the florist um, with uh, Audrey one, and uh, he's being very belligerent, and they they either made eye contact or said something off, but both of them just turned upstage and uh, tried to get through the next few seconds. And <laughs> the audience was rolling because it seems as though the audience knows this property inside and out. The produ- mm-hmm. performance that I was at. Uh, I adore this if you can get to see it, get to see it 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 It, it was so much so much fun and uh, i I even think that the second time I saw it was even better than the first time
1: One more thing about tammy uh, I, I, I I meant to mention she, her, the performance has so much heart uh there 's that point in her song somewhere that 's green uh right at the end she you know she she 's picturing this um, this perfect life in the suburbs with, you know, someone who loves her and in a beautiful little tract house and, and suburban bliss and, and, and how that would just make her happy and, and, and fulfilled. And she's lost in the reverie of that. And, and then she suddenly comes out of it at the end and the, 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 the lyric is, um, uh, a picture out of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. <laughs> and then she sings far from Skid Row. I dream we'll go somewhere that's green. But she paused for a long time after, uh, a picture out of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. And then you could see, you know, it's as if she, as if she suddenly realized where she was, at the moment and looked around and and almost really started to cry. Uh, and it was so beautiful. Ellen Green does something similar in in the movie. And uh, I, I think when I saw her do it a couple of years ago with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal at City Center, but Tammy brought it even further and it just it just made all the difference in us being so totally on the side of this of this young woman in this terrible situation that she's in.
0: All right. So that is Little Shop over at the West Side Theater. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's uh, scheduled through January 19th, 2020. I, uh, I'd imagine if they would like to, they can extend. Uh, yeah. So let's see what happens with that. This episode is being brought to you by showtickets.com. Showtickets.com is your go to source for the best deals on Broadway and off Broadway shows, New York City tours, and more. Right now, you can save over 40% on tickets to see Frozen, 35% on Oklahoma, and Beautiful the Carol King musical, and 25% on Waitress. Plus, check out our blog for exclusive interview content and stars and creators of Broadway's latest and greatest, as well as dining guys, itineraries, theater news, and more. Showtickets.com has everything you need to make your next trip to New York City one to remember at prices you'll love. What are you waiting for? Check us out today. Showtickets.com Next up, Peter and Michael. You went over to see the sound inside uh, with Mary Louise Parker and Will Hochman. Uh, Hochman? 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 Hochman, I would think. with Will Hochman. Uh, So, Peter, why don't you get us started on this uh, Adam Rapp play?
2: Certainly, um, Miss Parker is going to be remembered at awards time, uh, even though it's reasonably early in the season, because she is magnificent in playing this um, professor who um, has a student who comes uh, during the time that um, professors meet kids. You'd never know it from the lighting because it's awfully dark and i would assume that this is happening during school hours and uh, maybe even if it's after the clocks change as they will next week it's still awfully dark in that office which i think is very strange Um, this is a very darkly lit show and i'm not sure it needs to be but that's another story anyway this story involves the professor who more and more gets to like this kid and likes his talent and uh, he's a writer. She's uh, certainly in the creative writing field and um, so they're really bonding. However, something terrible happens to her and she asks him to do something that she makes it sound like it isn't all that big a deal. She knows it's a big deal. Absolutely. Absolutely she knows it's a big deal but it's a bigger deal than she's making it out to be and I do think that is an enormous problem for what she wants this guy to do, she actually wants him to do something that's terribly illegal. She wants him to do something that will get him in terrible trouble. And it's much too much to ask of anybody, let alone someone who is, well, um, not that close to her. As he says to her, you don't even know my middle name, which I thought was a wonderful line as a way of indicating you don't know that much about a person. So I thought that was terrific. But I have a real problem with her asking him to do this. Um, things wrap up <laughs> a little too neatly, um, at least for one of the two characters, let's put it that way. And um, I think it's a little strange that uh, it should happen so neatly, <clears throat> but it does. And um, so there's not much more to say about the sound inside because there are two characters. The other characters you mentioned, Will Hawkman, if that's how his name is pronounced, Reminds me of a very young Tony Roberts. Now, it may be simply because they have the same type of curly hair, but his demeanor was very much like that, too. A very nice performance, good for him. And uh, I wouldn't mind his being remembered at award time, but Mary Louise Parker had better be remembered at award time for this yeoman performance where she's almost nonstop uh, talking uh, many times directly to us. And uh, we're glad to hear what she has to say. But we're not so glad what she has to say to this young man late in the show
0: so um we're gonna see Mary Louise Parker again later this season in a different show so uh uh I'm interested to see if this is so um so well received as it has seemed to be it it, it can't really be extended because she's she's busy yeah so uh <laughs> Michael, what do you think of sound inside?
1: Yeah, I'm going to actually disagree about her being magnificent. I it's but it's it's a complicated situation for me. I have always said and and my mind has not been changed by this performance that she is always the same in every play she does. Especially as far as her speech patterns and inflections uh and timbre which are very eccentric. She has um she's really great at playing uh I don't want to say kooky but she has this this voice uh that is very affected I would say and very good at comedy. I I kind of would like to see her in an outright comedy someday because I think that she uses this quirky, odd voice and weird pronunciations, as I said, in every play I've seen, including plays in which they're completely inappropriate, such as Hedda Gabler. That that was not a role for her. So I think the fact that she is a creative writing teacher, uh, that would justify her being so quirky in her speech. Uh, so I didn't have a problem with it in that sense. But then when things in the play start getting really, really dark, and very very serious. She's still talking in that voice, and I, I, you know, I just don't think she has any range as far as that is concerned, and she doesn't seem to feel it's necessary. Um, so that's my feeling on her, and I, I've, I, it, as I say, it's not been changed. She's she's wonderful when the character she's playing in the situations in which the characters involved are. Uh, well communicated through her very odd speech patterns and pauses and inflections, and sometimes she has mush mouth, uh, which also ha- which also happens, you know, at, at various points, and. Then other times it it really doesn't. So that's how I felt about her in this. Um, Certainly in terms of uh, stamina, (laughs) uh, she has a tremendous amount of lines. And uh, there's an interesting uh, construct of this play by Adam Rapp. Uh, It is only two characters, but not only that, uh, for some reason, he's decided to write it that uh, Mary Louise Parker's character, of Bella. How funny that we're talking about two different Bellas Mm. today. Uh, But anyway, Bella um, narrates much of the dialogue uh, that she has with Christopher, even when he is also on stage. You know, she'll have a line like, then he said, blah, 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 blah. And I replied, blah, 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 blah. Um, I've seen that done, uh, I I suppose, in previous plays to a very small extent, but here it's kind of, all through it. And I wonder why um, the playwright made that decision. Maybe it's supposed to be a distancing effect, like sort of a Brechtian thing, or it could be a reference to the fact that she is a creative writing teacher. Um, And then also, you know, there are, there are, I would say it's a, it's a very compelling and gripping and basically well written play but there are some perhaps flaws in it that we can't discuss because they would be considered spoilers so we'll have to just leave it at that and you can see it and and make your own judgment i think uh david cromer uh i have mixed feelings about his direction i i too um question the extreme darkness as as Peter did, others have said they felt that that was very appropriate for the play. I'm not sure I agree. Also, I noticed something odd that uh, much of the action, uh, even though it's only these two people, uh, takes place a, a little far upstage. Mm. Yes, um, very true. Yes, uh, I do not. Mm, I cannot understand the reason for that. There were there was one or two long scenes I remember where uh, far from being. Downstage, front uh, or center, uh, they were not way upstage, but midstage, and and there was plenty of room. Uh, there's a scene at a uh, in a bar or a restaurant. Uh, then there are some scenes in Bella's home, uh, and and they're not downstage. And 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 I, and I really noticed it where at one point, finally, um, after quite some time has passed. The, the young man does walk way downstage, and I thought, oh, gosh, he's downstage. <laughs> uh, why why were they so far up for the rest of the play? So I don't know what, uh, what that decision was about, and there are several other things that I don't understand in it. It's a very enigmatic ending. Uh, aspects of the ending are very enigmatic, uh, and as we've discussed, a certain amount of enigma is a good thing, but uh, that depends on one's tolerance and you know it's all about degree and i'm not sure uh how i feel about the fact that this ending was so enigmatic uh it might have been better to have a few more answers uh the very very last thing that happens is going to be uh open to interpretation so there again i can't say much more but if you uh if you go see it let us know what you think <laughs> <laughs>
0: So a quick tangential thing to this is that uh, this, this show, The Sound Inside, is at Studio 54. It is not a roundabout production. It's actually a Lincoln Center production. Um, And
1: thank you for mentioning that, because I believe it was at Scotland, PA, uh, or it might have been at the Rose Tattoo, uh, or it might have been at both. There is a recorded announcement that Todd Hames, uh, who's the head honcho at Roundabout, gives. And he said uh, he said at one point, uh, you know, Roundabout um, has five theaters in which we produce uh, both enduring classics and new works. And I. Wanted to say, I I I am not the biggest roundabout fan. I wanted to say, well, you may have five theaters, but in several of them now, you uh, are renting them out and really acting as a landlord more than producing uh, in them. For example, uh, the Sound Inside and uh, the Sondheim Theater has not had a roundabout show for Ever. many years. Yeah, no,
0: it, it's never had it, since Roundabout has owned it. It has never had a roundabout show.
1: Wasn't the first one.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, anything goes.
0: Oh, anything goes that's right. Anything yeah. goes was But then
1: but then yeah. that but since then I think not.
0: <laughs> so uh yeah, round up, uh Stephen Sondheim Theater is uh Beautiful is closing, it's gonna be followed by Slavish Snow Show, then Mrs. Doubtfire is gonna open in the Sondheim. The American Airlines Theater certainly has a lot of uh, roundabout uh, shows in it. Uh, and we've talked about the Laura Pels in the off Broadway space. Uh, it's got a lot of uh, roundabout productions in it. But Studio 54 has got uh, Carolina Change coming in after Sound Inside. So uh,
1: I think maybe, the, maybe uh, um, just off the top of my head, the American Airlines is the only Broadway theater uh, that the roundabout has that, where they have not rented it out. Uh, so, it, you know, and it's fine if they want to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's not their mission statement, but if they want to be landlords more often, that's fine. But, but I think maybe best not to say we have five theaters in which we produce enduring classics and new works because it's just not very accurate.
0: All right, Peter, you got, uh, up to see Forbidden Broadway. Why don't you tell us about The Next Generation?
2: Well, the one thing I want to say about Forbidden Broadway That, um, you know, Michael's the expert on Forbidden Broadway. He's even written a wonderful book about it. So, uh, but the one thing I want to mention is that I noticed that certain songs went over better than others. And, of course, you say, well, yeah, that's going to happen. But what I really mean is that the songs that went over best were the songs where the melodies were well known already. Yes, Um, yes, yes. You agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, for example, the the skit on the ferryman, how are things in Irish drama as opposed to how are things in Glockamora? Um, so, uh, oh, what a miserable morning. I don't have to tell you what the original song was, um, or woke Lahoma for that matter. Um, but when he did parodies of Tootsie and uh, Hades Town, uh, he, by the way, of course, is Gerard Alessandrini, um, the Tony winner for doing this uh, series of uh, wonderful shows. Um, when he when he did melodies from those shows, people weren't responding nearly as much because they don't know the songs. It's a little much to expect these people to know the songs because are these albums even out? And if they are out, I mean. Uh, people aren't buying them as much uh, albums as much as they used to. And I I think it's a lot to expect that people are going to say, ah, yeah, that's such and such a song from Tootsie. Ah, that's such a song from, um, Hadestown. So I do think that, um, that was the, the problem there. Um, so my advice, not that he needs it, um, (laughs) is that really to continue using songs that people know, because that's part of the fun of it. Knowing that, um, how A Things in Irish Drama was How Are Things in Glockamora is 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 part of the fun. But if you don't know the lyrics to um the name of the song in Tussia Hades Town, well then you're gonna be a little bit um having less fun. And that's true of Beetlejuice too, by the way, the same type of thing. Now frozen um, didn't get much of a, of a response until the let it go song because everybody knows the let it go song. So it's that type of thing too. But, um, the damn Yankee songs that people know, um, were, were very, very well received. Um, I do want to say that I thought all the adults in the cast were excellent. Uh, and I certainly want to say Jenny Lee Stern did a wonderful job as Judy Garland. Yep. There's what Judy Garland. Uh, so, um, so I do think that the, um, um, Five uh, people um, were terrific. The, the kid um, <clears throat> needs a little more stage dust on his feet, uh, and that's what he's getting. And I bet by the end of the run, he'll be terrific. So, uh, But, you know, Forbidden Broadway is always fun, and uh, the time flies by. And even if you don't order an alcoholic beverage, you're going to have a good time. Peter,
1: I um yeah, that your point about the familiarity of the melodies or not, uh Gerard is has stated that he's very much aware of that. Oh, and yeah. in fact, sometimes um I can't think of a specific example now, but sometimes when he's parodied a new show, he will use a song from an older show. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh um and and obviously he has more freedom to do that when it's a when it's a straight play like the the uh ferryman spoof that you mentioned mm-hmm. uh but he's even done it for musicals uh and 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 another one case is um uh you know i mean arguably the uh the score of les mis is certainly very well known now mm-hmm. uh maybe not so much when it first came out and if you recall one of uh, the parody songs that Gerard wrote for his Les Mis parody was uh, to the tune of C'est Magnifique from Cole Porter's Can-Can.
2: Can-can. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you know, with the French theme tying it in. So uh, he does he does things like that, and he's aware of it. But I guess sometimes, uh, you know, he he just feels, well, I have to use <laughs> music from the, the the new show, even if people don't know it yet. And hopefully, uh, for example, like Dear Evan Hansen, uh Maybe it has the music has gotten out already. It has had time to get out. Uh, you know, people do have the album, and, and even if not, um, the, the you know the, the the music might just be conducive to uh, a parody, even if people are not yet familiar
2: with it. No question, but um, it did seem to me the, the audience I was with really responded to the songs they definitely knew.
1: Absolutely. And he, mm. yeah, he, he's said he is well aware of that. And, mm-hmm. and so he keeps that in mind and tries to use familiar songs whenever possible.
2: Well, whatever he chooses, his lyrics are always good. So, oh, and by the way, let me point out that even though they're an occasional false accent, Gerard rhymes perfectly. Now, why do I mention that? Because in comedy songs, that is vital vital to uh, have correct rhymes because we're talking about punchlines. We're really looking for comedy. So you really have to know uh, what those words are and the rhymes help you along there. So um, let that be mentioned as well.
1: And another brilliant thing he does is often he will rhyme the parody lyric with the original lyric.
2: Yes. Yes, indeed.
1: And that makes it even funnier for people who know the original lyrics yeah it's i can so many times uh it's it's just it's just so brilliant when that happens because it's happening on two levels at the same time you know Mm -hmm, it's just great
2: mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: okay uh so that is forbidden broadway we'll have a link to that in the show notes it is scheduled right now through january 5th 2020 next up uh, Michael, Peter, and I got a chance to see The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical at the Long Acre. So, uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on that?
1: Very, very sad. I I loved this show when I saw it at the Lucille Lortel when I believe it was uh, 90 Minutes, No Intermission. Um, this one has been pumped up out of all recognition for Broadway. Uh, I, on a positive note, um, I did not think that the additional material was uh, a problem. I uh, it's I it seems like maybe they added about half an hour. Uh now it's it does have an intermission and it runs about uh, 210 or 215, I believe. So they added about a half an hour. And I uh, actually don't know the show well enough to identify exactly what they added. But I was not aware of, oh, God, that song doesn't need to be there. and this, this scene is really superfluous. I did not feel that. Uh, where I think the show has been ruined, unfortunately, is just the way it's been it 's like it 's been injected with steroids first of all it 's painfully loud, painfully, painfully, painfully loud, and not even so much in the level of the volume, although certainly that too but the 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 tonal quality of the sound they uh, i i don 't know that much about uh, uh, technically about sound. Amplification to say, but it's as if the the EQ is off. the The middle frequencies are so high that this voices sound very, very shrill and distorted. Um, there's not enough bass for the volume, and it's all middle and high, high frequencies, and, and incredibly unpleasant. There were times that I almost wanted to put my fingers in my ears. So that that is unfortunate. I I've often said that shows. That don't seem to be working i've noticed that the volume tends to be turned up dramatically almost out of desperation as if the people involved realize that it's not going over and they think well if we make it louder people will respond more i find it the opposite it it repels you repels the audience rather than bringing them in so that was a tremendous strike against it as if that wasn't bad enough several times god knows why lights on stage are shining directly in your eyes and causing you to have to shield your eyes or look down or close your eyes or, or whatever. Absolutely idiotic. I, I cannot figure what they had in mind. I don't remember any of that off Broadway. I loved it there. It was a sweet little story about uh, Percy Jackson, who's um uh, half divine and half mortal. His father is Zeus. His absent father is Zeus. His his mother is a, a mortal, and he goes on a quest to find Zeus's lightning bolt. These are This is based on a series of books which are tremend, apparently tremendously popular. Um, it worked wonderfully off-Broadway, and I think they've destroyed it on Broadway. And I, I thought um, uh, I had heard... Um, very very bad reports after the broadway opening but i had not seen it yet i had only seen it off broadway and i thought well am i insane uh uh-huh. is is this the show that i saw but i i have to say um that frank sheck who reviews for the hollywood reporter uh i i ran into him recently and he had uh, very much the same response as me. And actually, I thanked him. I said, thank you, Frank, because he basically <laughs> said how much he loved it off-Broadway, and and then he just, just ripped it apart on Broadway because he felt th- exactly the same as I did, that they ruined it in so many ways. One, one thing I uh, will uh, remark is that, for example, uh, Chris McCarroll who plays Percy Jackson, he he still has a lot of charm, but it seems to me that he's kind of camped it up for Broadway and, and really broadened his characterization, whereas downtown at the Lortel, it, it wasn't like that at all, and it was far more charming and, and far more credible as this teenager. Now it's there was a lot of camp in it, and I didn't understand why that was going on. I don't know uh, how much of this is there is the doing of the director, Stephen Brackett. He presumably maybe told all these people to just really ramp it up, but I think it was a horrible decision. And, uh, this production does not have George Salazar who, uh, played Grover and I guess uh, Mr. D off Broadway and then went on to be more chill, uh, and, and got a lot of incredibly positive response for that. Um, but this does not have him instead it has another actor who actually i'm not going to name this other actor because the performance was nothing but screaming nothing nothing but screaming Uh, again i don't know if that's his decision or stephen Brackett's. very 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 bad decision and and tremendously damaging to the show as was the direction overall and the sound amplification and the lighting and the decision to pump up this sweet, funny little 90-minute show into a two-hour and 15-minute uh, trial on Broadway.
0: So uh, Jesse Green in the New York Times said exactly what uh, you, Frank Sheck said and what you're saying. Jesse Green loved it off-Broadway and could not figure out why they made these changes. So, yeah, uh, you know... I think we're all in a kind of agreement here of what's happened here. I, I just the only thing I wanted to add here is that I saw two performers who I didn't know that I really felt were outstanding. And I can't wait to see them again. Sarah Beth mm. Pfeiffer mm-hmm. um, and Ryan Knowles. Michael D. Ryan Knowles. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan's yes. voice is yeah, his speaking voice. just absolu- He could be he could be like a millionaire just on his uh, voiceover work his His speaking voice is just so amazing, A and brilliant. he changes it from character yeah, to from character, character to well, character he's there's one so, character so he good. plays
1: i'm sorry yeah there's that one character he plays as paul Lind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then but then there's another character where he talks like this mm-hmm. yes, he was wonderful and and so was that other performer you just mentioned
0: Sarah Beth Pfeiffer she yes. Uh, she played uh, Clarice and others uh, officially in, in the Playbill uh, builds Cl- Clarice and others, but she she did everything with one hundred percent commitment. When th- this little tiny fifteen second throwaway thing, the squirrel? I could not stop laughing when she did the squirrel. Uh, <laughs> it was so so funny. So let's take find the good in this. Had a handful of uh, performers who just, I can't wait to see the next thing that they do. So um, that is what we're talking about right now with uh, The Lightning Thief. Let's move on to the next thing in there, which is, um, Peter, you saw, uh, you actually have a CD, Mark William, singular Mark William. Come croon with me. So tell us about the CD.
2: Yeah, I do want to talk about this, because I really think this is the album of the year. Um, I don't know who Mark William is. He looks like he's 14 years old when you look at the um, cover. Um, uh, Very uh, preppy-looking guy. And uh, so wonderful that he is um, doing so many songs that aren't very well-known from shows. I'll grant you that uh, From This Moment On, which was dropped from Out of This World, is a famous song. But uh, for the most part for the most part, he really digs deep and going into uh, songs from way back when Um, songs from golden rainbow, um, pal, Joey, um, grand hotel, bye, bye, birdie, la cage, the whiz. Um, so, but a wonderful voice that is so much more mature than, um, he would seem to be from his picture. So, um, I don't know, maybe it's an old picture, but I, I have a feeling it's not, but, um, He reminds me very much of Steve Lawrence uh, in his heyday. And uh, if you like Steve Lawrence, I think you're going to like this guy because he has the same type of inflection. In fact, he does the title song from Bewitched, the TV show from years ago uh, about the witch and her husband uh, who doesn't want her to be a witch. Um, It had a terrific title song. And I remember steve lawrence recorded it and um so it was great to hear it again because it's a terrific song Um, there's a witch medley in essence when he does witchcraft too not a show song granted but um certainly uh one with um a a pedigree of authors who uh, certainly did broadway shows so i do think this is wonderful easy listening and um It's rare that I find an album uh, by a young man uh, or even an old man or an old woman, young woman, um, that impresses me as much as this one did. So um, I really think this is worth investigating. Mark William, singular, not Williams. So um, come croon with me. Yeah, think about it. Really, Um, yellow sound label. And um, it's quite, quite good.
1: It is not an old picture. He really does look like that. (laughs) <laughs> you, I've seen, seen him perform? I have not seen his show, but I've seen him out of various things. He's done uh shows at the green room forty two I think he may have one coming up. I can't seem to get to the calendar right at the moment uh-huh. uh but yeah, check it out
0: okay, Michael, you got over to fifty four below You saw Marilyn May again, so tell us how's Marilyn doing these days.
1: Well, she's great. And speaking of Golden Rainbow, she sang that again.
2: (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of that going on, huh?
1: That was one of her hits. Um, This was her latest smash engagement at Feinstein's 54 Below. Uh, I got to the last night of it, and I was so happy I did. uh, There were three divas in the audience. Uh, Donna Murphy... Melissa Errico, and Tyne Daly. And they were obviously tremendous fans of her. Uh, She really does have her groupies even among
2: (laughs) among celebrities. That is Uh, wonderful.
1: Yeah, no, it was amazing. Uh, It was a fabulous, fabulous show. Uh, This engagement, she had um, Billy Stritch as her pianist musical director for the first part of the run, and Ted Firth uh, for the second part which was uh, i i saw ted uh uh with her and they, they you know she's she has tremendous rapport with both of those people uh plus her bass player tom hubbard and this fabulous drummer that she's been working with i think recently mark mclean um they had incredible chemistry on stage lots and lots and lots of musical theater songs in this show, a whole uh, Jerry Herman section, uh, title song from Hello Dolly, plus it only takes a moment. Plus, before the parade passes by, followed by Mame, and he wa- and if he walked into my life, um, then uh, she did Lazy Afternoon, and she uh, dedicated that to Kate Ballard, who died fairly recently, and she did um, Look to the Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which we just mentioned, uh, and she as part of her rainbow medley, which was so wonderful. Uh, there was a great great bit that she did. Uh, Marilyn had learned "Getting to Know You" from The King and I. It was not one of her songs in her repertoire, but she learned it for uh, this encompass new opera theater salute to Bartlett Scherer that I went to, uh, that I reported on uh, about, uh, about a year ago or less than a year ago. Um, and she learned it specifically for that. So she started to sing it in this show. And <laughs> this was all set up, but it was so brilliantly done. It, it you know, it, it seemed spontaneous. She sang, um, it's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought that if you become a teacher by your pupils, you'll be taught. As a teacher, I've been learning. You'll forgive me if I boast, and I've now become a genius. And Tedford said, "Expert." Uh, <laughs> and she nice. said, "And she said what? You know, this again. This is all set up." She said, "What?" He goes, "Expert." So she goes over to the music, and she's like, "That's not right." And she looks through the music. Then she goes back to the microphone, and she sings, "And I've now become a genius." <laughs> and and Ted Fur threw the music at her (laughs) and she threw it back at him (laughs) and the audience was in hysterics and then Marilyn lost it too she started laughing Uh, so that was a great setup she she is so funny that she could be I think she (laughs) could have had a career as a stand-up comedian if she wasn't such a fabulous singer but at 92... Her mm. voice is still absolutely pristine mm. and her interpretive abilities unparalleled. And I think everyone there knows it was absolutely, absolutely packed to the rafters at 50, at Feinstein's 54 Below, even though it was the last of, I think, eight or nine shows uh, where it has definitely gotten around about this incredible resurrection uh, or... She never really stopped performing, but she um, she was not in New York for many years. So uh, in that sense, for people here, she was rediscovered when she came back quite some years ago and started to do shows at the Metropolitan Room first. And now she's performed in every major venue in the city. So um, she is a treasure. And I was so, so glad to be there.
0: All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia... I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page dot com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you can automatically download it to Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia?
2: Yeah, the question was, there's a film of a famous Broadway play that got a movie that starts with a shot of the Palace Theater where Good Time Charlie is playing. What's the film? And the film is The Sunshine Boys. Uh, which, by the way, you also can see a big wall display for the then-running Raisin. Tony You-Know-Who was the first to get it, followed by Jake Leonard, Mike Iwanis, Doug Strassler, Greg Christensen, Brigadoon, Donald Tessioni, Fred Abramowitz, and Ingrid Gamerman. Congrats to all. Now, new question. A musical from the 70s has both a title song and an overture. Now, usually, when a show has a title song and an overture, you hear the title song in the overture, but this show didn't. So what musical is it?
0: All right. So if you know the answer to that, you can email us at trivia at and We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: Bye
1: spot for the chairs